Hallelujah. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it'll take a few minutes for me to get there. I want to set some things up. Uh, first of all, a couple of months ago, uh, the Lord ministered to my heart, witnessed to my heart to, uh, to speak on uh, something that I intend to do for the next four weeks. There's a verse of Scripture back in First um, Chronicles chapter 12. I think it's verse 32 where it talks about uh, the, the whole 12th chapter of First Chronicles is talking about when David was, uh, he'd already been anointed to be king, but he was running from Saul. And so he was living in Philistine territory and, and doing guerrilla operations against the enemies of Israel and uh, all the time that Saul was hunting for him and so forth. And uh, it talks about uh, all the people that came to David when he was out in the wilderness. And uh, verse 32 talks about a certain group uh, of the tribe of Issachar, and it says these men, uh, well, let me, let me read it to you so I, so I make sure to get it right. It says, and the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them were 200 and all their brethren were at their commandment. It's interesting, is, that's, that verse of scripture has always been interesting to me because it identifies that the, that the uh, outstanding characteristic about this group of people was that they knew the time that they lived in. And the significance of those times. Well, I was um, uh, meditating, praying, doing my thing one morning a couple of months ago. And, and, uh, and the Lord just really witnessed in my heart to teach on understanding the times. And so for the next four weeks, uh, I, I, I have specific instruction to do it in four weeks. I don't know how to do it in four weeks. Because for each of the next four weeks, I want to talk about a different part of the end times to understand. This morning, I want to talk about understanding the rapture. Next Sunday, I want to talk about understanding the tribulation. The next Sunday, I want to talk about understanding, um, well, I'm not even going to go any further than that. At least I've got a plan. And there's no way I can finish talking about the rapture today. So I don't know if that means overlap. I don't know if that means hit the high spots. I don't know what that means. So you pray for me. Uh, If... Here's your options. You can either pray for me for the God to give me the things to say to you, or we can stay here until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> your choice. I don't care. doesn't matter to me. Um, so let's, uh, let's start talking about the rapture. Now, it's not my intent. At least I don't believe it is. Uh, well, I don't think it's what the Lord wants me to do. It's certainly not what I intend to do. Is to talk about things in, in such a detailed way that you get bogged down into specifics and, and, and get caught up in the sensational part. A lot of times people get into the book of Revelation and they start looking at the, the wild stuff and the sensational things and they forget that it's a revelation of Jesus. That's what the book is, a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a revelation of uh, wars and famines and angels doing stuff and all that kind of thing. The information is given to us, but it's supposed to be about Jesus. And so I want to keep it centered on things to help us keep our focus on Jesus. Amen. So with that in mind, let's, uh, uh, let's go ahead and start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica. It's interesting that Paul spent uh, a very short time, just a matter of months, in uh, Thessalonica. But he talked to them about end time stuff like a lot. He refers to things and says, remember I told you this. Well, he's only there for three and a half months. You wouldn't think that Paul going into a new city, starting a new church, he'd start uh, teach extensively or spend a lot of time talking about the end times. But he did. Now, I don't know if that was a pattern. 
I don't know if he did that everywhere because he doesn't make mention of it in some of the letters that he wrote. Like to the Romans, he didn't talk about anything he said to them about the end times. He didn't say anything about the Corinthians, but the Corinthians, bless their heart, they had so much trouble. He's busy dealing with other stuff. But other, other letters that Paul wrote, he did not identify the things about the end times that he did to the Thessalonians. So I don't know if there was something unique about them. I don't know if there was something that God specifically directed him in a different way. I don't know. But he talked to them a lot about the end times. So let's start in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll pick up in verse uh, 13. He said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Now, concerning them which are asleep, he's talking about those that have died before. In other words, your loved ones that have died. I want you to know about them. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now, he didn't say don't be sorrowful. He said don't be sorrowful and grieve like people that don't have hope. You've got hope. We've all lost loved ones. And it's at least for me, it's a comfort to know where they are. It's a terrible thing to have lost a loved one or a friend and not know where they are. Man, I, I see celebrities dying. I think, do you think? Maybe. Are they in heaven? Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, well, we do, don't we? Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, notice it says, will God bring with him? Now, if you didn't go any further, you've got to understand that God's coming back here for something. And he's going to bring those saints, those believers who have died ahead of time or ahead of us. And it says he's coming. He's going to bring them back with him. He didn't say we'll go to them. He said they'll come to us. Right? Now, I assume that Paul is covering stuff that he's talked about to them at least to some degree because he doesn't go into any detail. He doesn't say, now look, you need to understand there will come a time where God will come back. They must know that. And so I'm going to operate from that same assumption here in this uh, this series for the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to try to prove or establish or, or any of that kind of stuff. I'm going to assume that people have a working knowledge of certain things and go from there, okay? So it says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. Paul's not giving you his idea. He's saying this is what God is telling me to tell you. For this we say by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord. He must be coming. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, this word prevent means precede or go before, shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Interesting that Paul, and, and, and I know people get off on the different stuff. People talk about death being a soul sleep and, and goofy stuff like that. Paul is just simply using a word that, that does not translate into the cessation of existence. When he says that our loved ones who have gone on, those who have believed in Jesus, he says they're asleep. That doesn't mean that they've just gone to sleep. It means they're still alive. Thank God our loved ones that knew Jesus are still alive. We think of death as the end of something. Well, that's not the way death is spoken of in the Bible for the most part. Somebody dies here on the earth, it's the end of our seeing them physically, but they continue to exist. 
whether in heaven or in hell. And so that's why he's talking about sleep. That's why he uses the word sleep. So he says, for the Lord himself shall descend. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. Here's how he's going to come. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Now, trump does not mean trumpet. It means shout. It means voice. It means call. With the trump or the call of God. It's talking about a voice speaking. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Well, what does he mean? He means their bodies. Now, notice he says the bodies are dead. But they are asleep in Jesus. So the dead in Christ shall rise first. The bodies shall come up. Then which we are, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I don't know about you, but this thrills me. I mean, not just comfort. Comfort where my loved ones that have gone on are concerned. But it thrills me just to know that this is going to happen. Now, folks, please understand, this is not some fairy tale. This is reality. This is really going to happen. There is really going to be a day when we're going to hear the shout, the voice of God, the call of God, and the graves are going to be opened and dead bodies are going to rise. Now, I have to assume, and this is just kind of a working knowledge of the character of God, bones that are without flesh, Flesh will appear on them. It won't be a gross thing. It won't be a Halloween scene where, you know, skeletons are going up in the air and that kind of stuff. Think about the miraculous event that will take place. Because there are some people who have been dead for a long time in Jesus. And their flesh has already rotted off their bones. What's going to happen with them? Those bodies will be instantly reformed, recreated, Reunited with the spirits that are coming back with him. The spirits of our dead loved ones. Reunited with their bodies. And immediately following that, that happens instantly. And immediately following the instant after that, we're caught up together with them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. What does that mean? That means we don't come back here. That means we go from here up to heaven, up to the sky, and then from there where Jesus goes. Now, let's keep reading. Paul didn't write in chapter and verse. Translators put a a chapter designation here for reference sake. So let's keep reading. He said, but of the times and the seasons. Brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Well, there's only one reason that he wouldn't have any need to write to him about the times and the seasons. And that is if he's talked to him about it before. Right? I mean, I want to know about the times and seasons. Why wouldn't they? I'm looking for additional information about times and seasons all the time, aren't you? Well, why wouldn't they? He said, but of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I would write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, the day of the Lord in this context has to be speaking about when Jesus comes from heaven because that's what he just described. Now, notice where it says we're caught up. Uh, What verse was it in uh, chapter 4? It says, then verse 17, then which we, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's an interesting thing that the Bible uses the word cloud in a couple of different ways. In reference to the end, it uses clouds to mean people. 
For example, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Wherefore, or therefore, seeing we are encompassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, the cloud of witnesses is talking about the people, the list of people, the men of faith, the heroes of faith in chapter 11. And it calls those clouds of witnesses. So when it says Jesus is coming back in the clouds, it doesn't mean that he's coming back on a white puffy thing. It means he's coming back with people. Well, what people? The people that were dead in Christ ahead of us that are coming, that are in heaven now in the presence of the Lord. Paul said, for me to live in, um, for me to, to live as, uh, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I'll get it right in just a minute. And then he said, uh, he said to, to depart and be with Christ is, more, is far better. Well, what happens when someone dies? They depart and be with Christ. Their body is buried, but they, the real man, the spirit man, departs to be with Christ. Those are the ones that come back. Those are the clouds that come back with Jesus that the Bible is talking about. In other words, when it says clouds, it's talking about a whole bunch of people. And notice it says we're caught up to meet him in the clouds. Now, now no question about it. That means the air, and it may be a cloudy day when he comes back. I don't know. Could be a cloud or two in the sky. I can't imagine them sticking around, but who knows? But it's the clouds it's talking about his people. And notice it says we're caught up together. Now, the word rapture is the word that's used to describe this event. We've used it already here this morning several times. The word rapture is not in the Scripture. Well, what does rapture mean? Rapture means exactly what's being described here, being caught up together, being caught up into the air. Being caught up into the air. Now, some people, bless their hearts, some people will say, well, that those Christians, you know, that rapture idea. How stupid is that? Do you realize that there are seven different raptures spoken of in the Bible? Three of them have already occurred and four of them are yet to come. You want me to tell you what they are? Remember the Bible says in Genesis chapter 5, about verse 23, somewhere around there, it talks about Enoch. And it said, Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. How? Did he stab him in the heart? How did he take him? He raptured him. He caught him up. That's what it means. He was not, for God took him. It means he vanished. He disappeared. You remember Elijah? Elijah and Elisha are out for a walk. Elijah knows this is the day he's going home to be with the Lord. He tries to get Elisha to stick behind. Elisha won't leave, let him go. He knows what's going on. He won't let him go. So finally he says, okay, why won't you leave me, Elisha? Why won't you do what I tell you to do? And he says, I know this is the day you're going, and I'm going to stick with you. And he said, well, why are you going to try to stay with me? He said, because I want a double portion of what you've got. And he said, well, you've asked a hard thing. It wasn't hard for God. And it didn't even turn out to be too hard for Elisha, but in, in Elijah's mind, it was a hard thing. And so he said, if you see me when I go, then you can have what you want. And all of a sudden, it says, they went along their way, and out of heaven came a, 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 a chariot of fire. And Elisha looks up and says, my Lord, the chariot of fire and the horsemen thereof. It comes down, Elijah steps in, and takes off. Now, we were in Israel uh, some years ago and, and um, by, um, uh, oh, Caesarea Philippi. Beautiful place. And there's a building up on the side of the hill. I thought it was restrooms. And so I asked the guy, I said, uh, I said, why are those restrooms up there? That'd be a long climb up that hill. He says, that's not a restroom. He said, that's the grave of Elijah. I said, that's what? 
He said, that's the grave of Elijah. He said, the Muslims have, have built that as Elijah's grave. So I guess on the way, after Elisha did, was, was turned around and went the other way, I guess he fell out of that chariot. I, I don't really know <laughs> how that works. But When Elijah was caught up, that's a rapture, folks. God took him. He took him. You remember in Acts chapter 1, it tells how that Jesus was walking with his disciples. This is after he's been raised from the dead. He says in verse 8, he says, well, maybe we ought to look at this one. Let me, let me point this one out. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll flip to it real quick. Acts chapter 1, he says in verse 8, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and in all Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. Verse 9, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, cloud is used, same word cloud is used for end-time people, crowds, as it is for quite puffy things in the air. So you decide for yourself what this means. But it says Jesus was taken up. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Now, is that a serious question? If Jesus was standing here with you and all of a sudden he went up in the air, would you not be looking? Man, I'm going to be constantly staring all the time. But the problem is, that's what a lot of people are doing. They're missing what's going on around and here on the earth because they're staring up in heaven all the time. And that's what the angels are trying to get him to stop doing. He says, For I stand you here gazing up into heaven. This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner. Well, since we know that Jesus is coming back with people, that tells me the cloud must have been people. At least it's a pretty good indication. The same Jesus which is taken up from you, taken up, taken up, taken up from you. What happened? He was raptured. Rapture just means to be caught up. Which was taken up from you in heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then they return to Jerusalem. That's the third rapture. The fourth rapture is the one that Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's the rapture of the church. The fifth rapture is the rapture, the catching away of the great multitude midway or halfway through the tribulation period. The sixth rapture is the rapture of the, of the um, uh, uh, tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation period. And the seventh rapture is the rapture of the two witnesses on the last day of the tribulation. There's seven different raptures, folks. God doesn't have a problem with catching people up. We think about being bound to the earth. God doesn't. Heaven's a real place. God lives there. And the time is fast approaching when the distance between heaven and earth is going to be compressed. And travel between heaven and earth will be compressed and increased. So well, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1 again. But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now, what's he talking about now? He's already talked about the rapture. He's talking about being called away into heaven. Now he's talking about times. That's what we're trying to talk about is understanding the times. So he says, of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, meaning the rapture. Now, the day of the Lord doesn't always mean rapture in Scripture. But in this case, it has to because that's what he's just talked about. For the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, what does a thief do? 
he breaks in when you don't know he's there. He comes unawares. The day of the Lord, so comes as a thief in the night, for when they shall say, not when you say, when they, meaning the world, when the world shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. Now, folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but the, the motto of the United Nations is peace and safety. Well, let me, let me change that. The word safety here does not really mean safety. It means security. That's the motto of the UN, peace and security. Now, you can say whatever you want to about this. I think, my personal opinion, is that the United Nations, because one of the things Jesus says, we may get time to look at it, one of the things Jesus said is look at Israel and the other nations. You want to know about the end? He's answering the questions of the disciples in uh, Matthew chapter 24. When's the end going to take place? When are you coming again? Things like that were their questions. He said, look at Israel and the nations. Well, the United Nations is kind of the nations. So I personally think that this is a, a, an indication by the Holy Ghost to let us know, us meaning the church world at large, not America, but the world at large, know here's a sign of the end. The United Nations was chartered in 1955, I believe. That's a sign of the end. Israel became a nation in 1948. And within a 10-year period, you got Israel and the other nations as a sign. Judge it for yourself. For when they shall say peace and safety or peace and security, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Not you, them. He didn't say make sure you have your stuff in order and find a cave to live in. He said, then sudden destruction shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. He didn't say you wouldn't. He said they wouldn't. He's talking about the world. He's talking about the unsaved. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Paul is telling you, you ought to have some kind of idea when. In other words, you ought to understand the time so that you're ready. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. In other words, we've got an advantage over people that are unsaved. We have some kind of idea. We've got some kind of understanding about the end that they're not going to have. Don't ever get bothered about the world making fun of the church, about the rapture and the end time events and all that kind of stuff. They're stupid. They don't know. No, they don't have to be stupid. They can know, but they don't. Without Jesus, they don't. Therefore, verse 6, let us not sleep. Let us not sleep. Difference between being in darkness and being asleep. You're children of the light. You're children of the day. You should know, but some won't because they'll be asleep. But don't be one of those that go to sleep. Don't get distracted. Don't get deceived. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. By the way, every time the Bible uses the word sober, it comes from the root word that means not moved by emotion. Not moved by emotions. Emotions are great things, but they're terrible guides. Don't let your emotions take you away from what you know to be true in the word. Everybody has emotions, some to greater degree than others. 
But everybody has emotions. Everybody's affected by their emotions. But you don't have to let them change what you know to be true. That's what he's saying. Therefore, and if this is going to be a key if you're going to stay awake, spiritually awake to the end times. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. The word watch doesn't mean look. It is always used in connection with pray. In other words, be watchful in prayer and don't let your emotions take you away or get away from you. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. Now, wait a minute. I thought night was talking about the unsaved. Yeah, but Christians can go to sleep and be just like the unsaved. So what is he talking about? He's talking about deception. He's not talking about character. He's not talking about the nature of God. He's talking now about Christians, those who are saved, those who are righteous, being carried away with the things of the world. Deceived by the things of the world and therefore miss the understanding of the times that we should have. For they that sleep in the night, they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunken are drunken in the night. Interesting that he used that term. I mean, sleep already conveyed the thought, didn't it? But then he talks about being drunken in the night. Okay. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, keep the armor of God on. Now, if you remember, remember in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 where he said, Be strong in the Lord and, and the power of his might. And he talks about putting on the armor of God. The whole purpose is, for verse 18, where it says, Praying always. With all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching thereunto. For all saints. In other words, he says the whole purpose for having the armor of God on is to watch and pray. That's exactly what he's saying here. He just condenses it down. Summarizes it rather than goes into detail like in Ephesians 6. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, if you want to not be deceived, if you want to make sure to stay spiritually awake, you're going to keep the armor of God on. You're going to stand strong in the word and you're going to be prayerful as you see things happening around you. Four, verse nine, four, because God has not appointed us to wrath. Folks, everywhere, the tribulation, the seven-year period of tribulation is called the wrath of God. And it says God has not appointed us to wrath. Now, he says they shall not escape. They mean the unsaved, the world. They shall not escape the wrath of God, but we will escape the wrath of God. Why? Because God has not appointed us unto wrath. He's not appointed you under the tribulation. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy in the body of Christ about when's the rapture? When's the rapture? Well, I already gave you. There's uh, uh, four different raptures yet to come. One of them before the tribulation, that's the rapture of the church, and three of them during the tribulation. That's why there's so much controversy in the body of Christ. That's why so many people think uh, that, well, there's going to be a rapture. The rapture is going to take place at the midpoint of the tribulation. Well, are they right or are they wrong? Yeah, they're right, but it's not the church that's raptured. It's those who get saved in the first half of the tribulation that are going to be raptured at the midpoint. Then those that get saved from the midpoint to the end will be raptured at the end of the tribulation. Now, it's a short rapture. They're caught up into the air, meet Jesus, and come immediately back to the earth. So it's a short ride. So that's why people th- some people think there's a rapture before the tribulation. There is. It's the church. There's a rapture in the middle of the tribulation. There is. That's the great multitude. And there's a rapture at the end of the tribulation. There is. Those are the ones that get saved during the last half. The important thing, folks, is make the first trip. (laughs) 
For God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, turn with me over to, um, oh, gee, I'm already out of time. <laughs> now I'm just ready to start talking about the things I want to talk about. Um, there are certain signs, there's no way we can cover it all this morning, um, but there are certain signs that the Bible talks about. There are signs of, uh, of Jesus. I tell you what, turn with me. You're right here in, in 1 Thessalonians. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, and then also turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Let's, maybe the way to do this is try to hit them both real quick at the same time. Matthew 24 and 1 Timothy 3, I think it is. No, it's 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's start in 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. Now the word expressly means specifically. It also has to do with, it has to do with specifics and it has to do with time. In other words, he's saying the Holy Ghost says a lot, very specifically, that in the last days, the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. Now folks, you can't depart from the faith unless you are in the faith. So he's got to be talking about Christians. He's got to be talking about the church. He's not talking about the world. There are very few signs that we see in the world. Jesus gives us most of those. There are very few signs that we see in the world as indicators, but there are a lot of signs in the church. One of the signs we just saw is when they say peace and safety, literally peace and security. Okay, that's a sign we see in the world, not in the church. Another sign, Daniel says, when knowledge increases and people go to and fro. In other words, he speaks of two things that we can see in the world, the increase of knowledge and travel. Well, that's pretty well said already, isn't it? They say now that somebody that's starting college this fall, by the time they get out, the knowledge that they got in those four years is obsolete. That's how fast knowledge is changing in the world. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times... Now, Paul's talking to Timothy. Please, let's set the context here. Paul's not talking to a church. He's writing to Timothy, who's a fellow minister. He's going to tell Timothy some specifics about things he might not say in an open setting. Maybe not writing a letter or saying in a, in a church service. But he's writing to Timothy, and he's telling Timothy, the Holy Ghost is talking a lot to me about the last days. That's the point he's trying to make. And here's what he's telling me. That in those last days, some shall depart from the faith. People are going to turn away. Well, what does that mean? That means a lot of people are going to go to sleep. It doesn't mean they're going to lose their salvation. It doesn't mean they're going to go to hell. It means they're going to go to sleep. The very thing that Paul just cautioned the Thessalonians about, you're in the, you're not in the darkness, you're in the light. So don't go to sleep. Because being asleep is like being in the darkness. You're still saved, but you're just as dark as far as your lifestyle, as far as your understanding is concerned, as those who are unsaved. You'll be caught just as unawares and just as unprepared as the world. Can you see it? See how it fits together? Paul's the same guy. He's not going to say something different to Timothy than he says to somebody else. He may give us more information when he's talking minister to minister. So he says, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, it's interesting that he says doctrines of devils because that can mean one of two things or both. It could mean either doctrines by devils or doctrines about devils. I always shy away from people that are teaching on the devil. 
People talk about classification of demons. Who cares? The name of Jesus covers them all. What do I care if it's class one through four? Oh, you're a class four demon. Okay, well, here's a class four name of Jesus. Why should that care? Why should that matter? Jesus never spent time saying, oh, you're a big bad demon. No, he said, shut up and come out. I like his pattern. So he says, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now, what does seducing spirits mean? Seducing spirits mean deceiving spirits. Folks, the devil is out to deceive you. Nobody's immune from being deceived. Now, how does somebody get deceived? Well, do you remember James chapter 1, verse 22? It says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. There's only one way that you can really be deceived, and that is to stop being a doer of the word, to take something else and to embrace something else in your life other than the word of God in action. Now, you can be deceived in one area and not be deceived in another area. You can have your eyes wide open to what salvation is, Jesus dying on the cross to forgive your sins and be completely deceived about healing. To think that God doesn't do that anymore. Well, why? Because you depart from what the Bible says on that subject. So you can be deceived in any number of areas. That's why we need to watch and pray. That's why we need to be on guard. That's why we need to keep the armor of God on. That's why we need to have the helmet of salvation on. Think according to the word. In the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing, deceiving spirits, and doctrines or teachings of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy. Now, folks, please notice the hypocrisy. He said one of the signs of the ends, one of the signs of deception, one of the signs of this wrong doctrines, doctrines of or by devils, about or by devils, whichever way, it may be both, I don't know, is that it will be hypocrisy. In other words, people preaching things they don't live. That's why you're supposed to judge somebody's fruit, the fruit of their lives. You know, it's, it's a real popular thing. Maybe it's always been this way, but it's a lot more vocal now than ever before. It's a real popular thing to say, only God can judge me. You're judging me. You know, the only people I've ever found that complain about being judged are the people that are living wrong. Folks, judge me. Really, judge me. The Bible tells you to. The Bible says a man who is spiritual judges everything. Now, if you judge me or I judge you and see something unfruitful in our, we see something unfruitful in one of our lives, that doesn't mean that you have an evil heart. That doesn't mean you have an evil intent. It means that you're not living up to the truth of the word in a certain area. But I'm remiss if I don't judge that. Now, folks, I have to judge that. Somebody comes and says, Pastor Mike, I want to get involved. I've got to judge their life. I've got to see if they're living a lifestyle that's worth being put in leadership for other people to follow. It's a part of being a Christian. It's a part of being spiritually developed. Everybody judges everybody. And we're supposed to. Not their heart, not from within, but the fruit of their lives. Paul said, know those that labor among you. In other words, judge their fruit. You should be judging my life to see if I'm living up to what I preach. Absolutely the truth. I was behind an uh, SUV the other day, and it said, had a bump, had a sticker on the window. I'd never seen this before. I've heard it a lot. But it said, only God can judge me. 
And I thought, well, okay, I guess that's replaced the fish symbol that you used to put on your bumper. I guess that means if you flip somebody off going down the road, you're okay. Because only God can judge me. Folks, that's part of the deception that's coming into the church today. Open your eyes. See what's going on. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. It doesn't say they don't have a conscience. It says they don't hear it anymore. You can reject the word, reject the leading of the Holy Spirit to the place where you don't hear your conscience any longer. And that's the ultimate deception. It's the ultimate in deception. Certainly that person is asleep in the darkness. Now notice he's going to give some examples of, uh, of some of the things that people will promote or forbid. It said forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Then he goes in and says every creature is good and acceptable of God. In other words, don't let anybody tell you what you can eat. Mayor Bloomberg. I use that as an example that's going on today. Now, we look at this and we think something else other than what we see going on around us. We think of somebody standing up saying, all meat is bad, you can't ever have meat again. But, folks, when you got people telling you, acting as food police, telling you what you can eat and what you can drink and how big a thing you can eat and how big a thing, how big your big gulp can be, what do you think this is? It's what the Holy Ghost was talking about. It's talking about people gaining control, trying to gain control of your lives by telling you what you can and cannot do. And notice it mentions two things. It talks about people telling you what you can eat. I believe that means drink too. And it tells about marriage. Now here it says forbidding to marry. Maybe I'll look this up. I've never looked this word up. I wonder what this word forbid means. Let's see. Somebody got the Jeopardy theme here we can play? Okay, the word forbidding means to stop, that is to prevent by word or act, forbid, hinder, keep from, let, not suffer, withstand. Well, okay, that doesn't help me. Thank you very much for your time. (laughs) Folks, can we at least agree that there's an assault on marriage today? Now, I don't see anybody saying that you can't or shouldn't get married, but do you realize that according to the polls, the number one issue, the most important issue for people under 30 years of age is gay marriage. Why? Well, there's some notion that we've got to be fair. Folks, there's nothing in the world that's fair. This idea of fairness is of the devil. It's stupid. There's nothing in the world that's fair. You've got different gifts than I've got. Your gifts may provide you a greater income than my gifts provide me. Is that fair? Well, it's the way it works. I help people spiritually. Hollywood actors get on TV or get in movies and make tons and tons and tons of more money than I do. Well, who's providing a greater lasting eternal benefit? I kind of think it's me. Well, is it fair that they should make more money than I do? Well, that's a stupid argument. They do. It's the way it is. And this idea that it's got to be equal for everybody, that's nuts. 
And so now we're saying, well, we can't discriminate. Folks, everybody discriminates all the time. The world is all about discrimination. And discrimination is not necessarily a bad thing. It's it's nuts. It's the whole world. This thing about profiling. Try to fly into Israel. They don't have a problem with profiling. The trip that we took to Israel, the security that you have to go through, and and this was right after 9-11, so I mean, it was hot and heavy. And the, they took us, you know, they, they were nice about it. They, they, they kind of go, you, send you through different stages and stuff. But it took us 45 minutes to get through security individually. They, you'd have one person asking you questions, turn around, have to answer the same questions as somebody else. They profile you and they're safe. What do we do? We say, oh, we can't discriminate. Everybody discriminates. Everybody does that. You, the Bible says man looks on the outward appearance. Every time you look at somebody, you make a judgment about them. Might be right, might be wrong. But it's what we do. It's the way we operate. And this idea that there's supposed to be fairness in the world. There's never going to be fairness in the world. Never going to be fairness in the world. When we get to heaven, we don't all even receive the same rewards. Wouldn't that be sad? You get to heaven, you get somebody that lived a terrible life and somebody that was a saint, served God for, for you know, a hundred years. And God said, well, we have to be fair. Let's give this person this reward. You really did it, but we're going to give them your reward too. That's nuts. God rewards you according to your faithfulness. And that's the reason, or at least one of the reasons, why there's being such an assault on marriage today. Oh, it's unfair to say that marriage is between a man and a woman. Really? Take that up with God. He's the one that said it. So two things that are mentioned here, what you eat and marriage, we see taking place now. Now, does that mean that it'll go beyond gay marriage? Well, folks, once you say that two men can get married or two women can get married, if marriage doesn't mean man and woman, then you can marry anything. You can marry your dog. Seriously. You can marry 20 dogs. Where do you stop? If you say it's not between one man and one woman, where do you stop? I mean, we can't discriminate. We've got to make it fair. And what if somebody's in love with their dog? Bless their darling heart. We have to allow for all of God's creatures to love. This stuff turns my stomach. But you got Christians that are standing up saying, well, yeah, you know, we ought to be tolerant. I think I'm going to let God be the the, the standard for tolerance. Now, God's very tolerant of people, but he's not real tolerant of behavior when it comes to identifying or defining it as right and wrong. Now, thankfully, he doesn't judge us and punish us for doing wrong right off the bat. There is a punishment for wrongdoing, but it doesn't come from God. It comes from getting out from under the blessing of God. It's the curse that's on the earth. Okay. Um, okay. Turn with me now to, uh, I tell you what, we're, Second uh, Timothy. Before we go to Matthew, Second Timothy chapter 3. 
This know also that in the last days, second letter he writes to Timothy, he's still talking about end time stuff. Must be important. This also know that in the last days, perilous times shall come. The word perilous means dangerous. It means strength reducing times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce makers, false accusers, incontinent, that means undisciplined, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Notice that one, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Can I ask you a question? Aren't the unsaved like that all the time anyway? He can't be talking about the world. Unsaved people are like that all the time. You can't trust their word. They're fierce. They're traitors. They're heady. They're high-minded. They're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. He's got to be talking about the church. He's talking about things creeping into the church in the last days. Notice the next verse he says in uh, verse 5, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. Now he says these are things that are specific to the last days. I would submit to you that there have always been Christians that have operated that way because that's the way the world operates. So he must be talking about some kind of increase. He must be talking about some kind of um, exponential increase in the behavior of the church, of Christians in the last days. And notice that it says having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Folks, other religions already fit that bill. They have a form of godliness but they deny the, the power thereof. What is this, what does this mean relative to the church? Well, remember Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he's saying the gospel or the word of God is the power of God unto salvation. So if something has a form of godliness but denies the power, that has to mean, and we see a lot of that today, people claiming to be Christians but turning away from the truth of the word as far as a lifestyle. And, folks, that's the key to deception. To say your one thing but reject the word in your life. So what is he saying? He's saying the sign of the end. If you go through all of those things, we won't take time to even go through the list one by one. But if you take all of those things, it comes down to two things. It comes down to selfish and unfaithful. Selfishness and unfaithfulness will be signs of the end time church. That doesn't mean everybody in the church. Because the Bible talks about the glory of the latter house, the glory of the last day church being greater than the former. So you're going to have some part of the church, a segment of the church, that is standing on the word and doing exploits in the name of Jesus. Signs and wonders and miracles. To bring in the precious fruit of the earth that Jesus is waiting to come back for. But you're also going to have a segment of the church. I don't know what percentages are. But you're going to have a segment of the church that is operating in selfishness and in unfaithfulness. Denying the word. So what's the answer for this? Skip with me over chapter 4. Paul says to, uh, to Timothy, he said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. What's the answer? Preach the word. Timothy, you know this is going to be the condition of the church. Paul's just told you the spirit of God's telling him over and over and over again. He's written you two letters about the end. What's the answer? Preach the word. How many churches can you find that really preach the word? 
Now, folks, I don't mean this to sound self-serving, but there used to be a lot of people. There used to be a lot of churches that were identified as word churches or word of faith churches or whatever label you want to put on it. I really don't like labels, but whatever label you want to put on it, you could count on people preaching, believe the word of God, speak it in your life, speak it from your mouth and see it come to reality in your life. Used to be a whole number of churches. I can't find many now. Even some of the people that used to preach that are preaching other stuff now. I mean, even some of my own group. I pretty much quit going to some of the ministers' things that they have because it's it's awful. It's just awful. People used to speak faith. People used to speak what the Word says. People used to go headstrong into their circumstances and their problems and say, well, you know, things have been tough, but bless God, He's seeing us through. Now they come together and they say, well, things have been tough. What are you doing about it? Well, what happened to believe in God? What happened to accepting the Bible to be true? Folks, they're dwindling. Even now, they're dwindling. What's it going to be like in 20 years? Because where are people going to learn to preach the word from? Who's going to teach them? Now, there's some people out there doing great work. I, I thank God for the roots that I've got. Let me tell you this. If it were not for the promises that the Bible identifies for the last days, I'd really be worried. But God comes through. So preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Notice he did not say, make sure not to step on people's toes so they don't leave your church. Now, why do I say that, folks? Here's why I say that. I'm going to stomp big time on some people's toes. You ready? If the signs of the end are selfishness and unfaithfulness, why do people think that they serve God at their convenience? Where did the idea come from that we'll serve God when it works into our schedule? Well, summer's coming, so we're going to take the summer off. We won't be helping at church, Pastor Mike, because we're going to take the summer off. Oh, well, that's that's okay. We only reach people in the winter and the spring and the fall. <laughs> we don't need you for the summer. Now, I realize that this is that if you think I'm talking to you, I probably am because most people do this. Well, you know, we're just living by grace. Yeah. One of the things that Paul told, well, let's keep reading here. Let me, let me finish this up. Verse three, for the time will come. He said, preach the word for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. He said, but don't you do that. Make full proof of your ministry. What does it mean? People will heap teachers to themselves having itching ears. That means people look for teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. What do people want to hear? You're okay with God. You don't have to have any commitment. You know how I know that? Because when you preach commitment, your next Sunday service is about half of the attendance that it was the previous Sunday. (laughs) 
So as long as there's no commitment, as long as it's God's about feeling good, God's about being happy, folks, okay, let me just accept. I understand that I've already run you off, so I'm just going to go ahead and do this, okay? That's why I cannot stand the modern-day church attitude toward drinking and tattoos and other stuff like that. Now, I'm not against anybody that drinks. I'm not against anybody that gets or has gotten tattoos. But I won't do it because it identifies me with the world. The Bible doesn't tell me to drink. Paul told Timothy to because he had stomach trouble. I don't have stomach trouble. So I don't have a commandment from the Word to do it. I don't have a commandment from the Word to tattoo my body. Therefore, it means that those kinds of activities, those two specifically and other types of activities like that, identify the individual with the world. Why would I want to do that? Now, for me, it's easy for me to, I'm going to stand behind my little pulpit here. Here's my shield. It's easy for me because if I do it, somebody gets hurt. So I've got the perfect out. If I drink, somebody's watching and it'll hurt them spiritually. If I get a tattoo, somebody's going to see it and it's going to hurt them spiritually because they're going to think, well, I never thought Pastor Mike would do something like that. Because there's this, this idea that ministers are supposed to live differently than everybody else. Where did that come from? I'm no more a Christian than you are. I don't live right because I'm a preacher and I'm scared of being found out. I live right because I'm a Christian, because I'm a believer, because the Bible tells me what to do. Why would I want to be identified with the world? Now, I know what other people are going to say. People are going to sit back. They're going to, they're going to puff themselves up. And they're going to think, well, this is not what I wanted to hear. Yeah, okay, we'll find another teacher that will tell you what you want. That's what the Bible says in the last days people will do. That's why some churches are big. Thank you very much. So I know what some people are going to do. They're going to say, well, okay, that's, that may be that way for you, Pastor Mike, but I'm not under bondage like that. Nobody's watching me. Okay, I've got two things to say. Number one, are you sure? And number two, why not? Are you living such a backslidden life that nobody is looking at you? Seriously? Well, the Bible doesn't forbid drinking. No, it doesn't forbid taking arsenic either. But I'm smart enough not to do some things because it's not good for me. Well, Pastor Mike, are you saying it's wrong to smoke or drink or get tattoos? Nope. It's between you and God. But I won't be identified with the world. And I have a hard time understanding why anybody else wants to be. I'm not your judge. Only God can judge you. And here's where all this stuff comes in. Well, you're just judging me. I'm judging the fruit of your life. Yeah, like I'm supposed to. Now, maybe you didn't know when you got a tattoo. Maybe you just started drinking and it became a thing to do. Okay, that's fine. But one of these days you're going to have to grow up and find out what the Bible says and then make your own decision from there. At least you're supposed to. Folks, we're talking about faithfulness. We're not just talking about faithfulness to God. We're talking about faithfulness to the church. We're talking about faithfulness to the body of Christ. One of the things that we read over in First uh, uh, Timothy uh, 
chapter 4, it says without natural affection. One of the signs of the end of the church would be without natural affection. Now, people make a big deal about that saying, oh, that's homosexuality. Well, those phrases, those terms, that term, those words are used in description, uh, in a description of homosexuality in Romans chapter 2. No question about it. But the word literally means without a natural family affection. It means there's going to be family trouble. Because fathers abandon, fathers and mothers abandon their kids because kids abandon their fathers and mothers. It means that there's no natural concern for one another in the family of God. Along with whatever else it means, and I don't have any doubt it means homosexuality too. But it's said in such a way that it can mean a variety of things, and that's really what it comes down to. Do I show up every Sunday morning because I've just got an itch to hear myself talk or because I care about you? Well, then why do you show up on Sunday morning? Why do you help in kids' church? Why do you help as an usher? Why do you help in the parking lot? Why do you help to do anything that you serve God in doing? Well, Pastor Mike, that doesn't apply to me. I don't do any of those things. Why in the world don't you? So let me just say goodbye now. It's been a pleasure being your pastor. If any of the stuff I'm saying is untrue, then I invite you to go. Seriously, find somebody that will tell you the truth. But if what I'm saying is true, then don't we have a responsibility to live up to the truth? Okay, do you still find, uh, you still got your finger over in Matthew chapter 24? Turn back there with me. See one of the things Jesus said. Verse 1, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. For to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus, let me show you Herod's temple. (sighs) Wow. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, Jesus said, I'm not impressed with this. This is Herod's temple, not God's. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? Now, what things? What is the only thing that he said? The temple will be destroyed. He said, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? Three questions. When is the temple going to be destroyed? What's going to be the sign of your coming? They must know he's coming back. At this point in time, Jesus has clearly began to teach them that he's going to be killed, he's going to be crucified, and he's coming back to the earth. He's told them plainly. And so they're asking, when are you coming back? That'd be my question too, wouldn't it yours? Okay, I don't like the crucifixion and dying part. Resurrection, okay, that sounds good. You coming back, that sounds great. When is that going to be? But then they say they recognize that the sign of, that they recognize that the coming back of Jesus is not the end of the world because they ask a separate question about that. Three things. When is the temple going to be destroyed? When are you coming back? And what's the end, what's the sign of the end of the world? And Jesus answers. Jesus knows that they're not going to be around to see, or many of them at least, are not going to be around to see any of these things. The temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. And so if any of them are alive, that's the only one of the answers to the questions that they're ever going to witness physically. So he does not answer, okay, question number one, here's your answer. Question number two, here's that answer. Question number three, here's that answer. He gives them a broad picture. He said, here's the information you need to know about the end. Now, he left it to us. Now, remember, the Bible tells us that Jesus taught in parables so that everybody would have to dig to find the answer. Jesus did not lay it out so that everybody could say, one, two, three, four, five. 
Jesus put it together for us to understand by judging it against other scripture. And so he answers. He said, take heed that no man deceive you. What are they asking? When's the temple going to be destroyed? What's the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the world? The first thing Jesus said is, watch out that you don't be deceived. What does that tell me? That tells me that concerning the end times and Jesus coming back, deception is going to be a real big deal. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, shall come in my name, shall come in my name. Who comes in the name of Jesus? Preachers. If somebody stood up and said, forget this Jesus stuff. I come in the name of the angel Gabriel. Are you interested? They just lost me. I don't care about Gabriel. Bible says at the end, I'll rule over Gabriel. So will you. Who cares about that? No, the deception comes by people saying, I come in the name of Jesus. God sent me. And guess what? They'll say, I am Christ and shall deceive many. I do not believe for one minute that Jesus is saying that people will say, I come in the name of Jesus and I'm him. That's going to be a pretty easy way to distinguish whether or not somebody's Jesus, wouldn't you think? I mean, when he came the first time, he proved himself. I don't think for one moment that he's talking about people saying, I am the Christ. But what does Christ mean? Christ means anointed one. It means way to God. He's saying people will come in my name, meaning in the name of God, saying, claiming to be sent by God, in other words, saying there are other ways to God and shall deceive many. Islam is one great example of that. You've got Muhammad who says that he's sent from God because he got the information, the revelation, he, the so-called revelation he got from an angel, and there's a different way to God. Forget this Jesus stuff. Muhammad says, just as Jesus said in John chapter 14, there's one coming after me, the spirit, even the spirit of truth, and the Father will send in my name. Muhammad said he was the one that was sent after Jesus. And look at how many people are deceived by that. He's talking about ways to God, folks. There's only one way to God. That's through the name of Jesus. And there's only one way to fellowship with God. And that's through his word. And the word of God is the only thing that keeps you from being deceived. So again, he's talking about departing from the word. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. He's talking about signs. One of the things they asked him was about signs of the end. He said, and you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. We hear a lot about wars nowadays. What are we supposed to do? Well, the Bible says, don't be afraid of that. Don't be concerned about it. Don't be troubled by it. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. All these are the beginning of sorrows. All these are the beginning of sorrows. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Is it possible that he means tribulation when he talks about beginning of sorrows? Well, then that means all of these things will be in place. All of these things identified in verse uh, 7 will be in place at or subsequent to the rapture, surrounding the time of the rapture. 
Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, that you know, the rapture happens on Sunday and Monday afternoon the tribulation starts. Or it doesn't say it's an instant thing. It doesn't say anything like that. There could be a period of time. There could be the rapture of the church and, and several years go by and then tribulation begins. We do know the beginning point of the tribulation. We'll talk about that next week. We do know exactly when the tribulation begins, not date and time, but the event that signals the beginning of the tribulation. But the Bible doesn't tell us. I've always assumed, and I grew up thinking that the church is raptured and instantly the tribulation starts. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. It stands to reason that since the church is the only thing that's keeping the Antichrist from being revealed up front, that it wouldn't, it, it doesn't seem to me to be feasible that the, that the world would go along very long without the presence of the church. But still, you know, what do I know? Who knows? But we can definitely identify that there are certain things we can look for. We can look for wars as signs of the end. We can look for nations against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. The word nation is the word ethnos. It means racial wars, and it means government or country wars. So you see civil wars in certain countries, ethnic groups against ethnic groups. That's this sign. You see nations lining up against each other. That's one of these signs. Pestilences means plagues. Folks, we haven't seen the last plague. AIDS was the last one. We quit hearing about that so much because they're, they've uh, made some progress in that regard. But you haven't seen the last one. And famines. Notice it says famines. Did you know that the world's uh, farmland is decreasing by 8% per year? Food shortage is on the way. Not only that, but look at the government regulation that tells you what you can grow and how you can grow it and all that other kind of stuff. It's squeezing the food supply. These things are on the way. Now, notice something else it says. It says, uh, uh, where is it, verse? Verse 9, we'll, we'll keep going here a little bit. Verse 9, then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and they shall kill you and shall be hated of all, you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Now, that's happened almost immediately. You remember James was killed by Herod, and Peter was put in jail, and he was going to kill him too. So he's talking about things. He's mixing some things up. These are things that began to take place. I believe that they'll also increase toward the end of time as well. But these are things that began to increase as the persecution rose against the church. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. You know, there are more warnings. Paul gave more warnings about false teachers and false prophets than he warned about any other thing in his letters. You need to be careful who you listen to. You need to judge the fruit of somebody's life to see if they're, they're worthy of listening to, worthy of your attention. Judge it by the word. Now, notice verse 12, and it says, Because the iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You know what this is saying? It's saying one of the signs of the end is that as things get worse and worse, a lot of people will just give up. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Love of toward what? Lord, to, love toward other Christians. Lord, to, love toward the family of God. Love toward God. They'll just withdraw. What do people do when economic times get tough? They pull back. On their giving, they pull back on their on, on involvement. They pull back. They begin. The natural tendency is to hunker down. 
That's what the Bible says is one of the signs of the end. Don't be like that. Don't live according to the, to the world's way of doing things. Live according to what the Word says. The Word's true whether the economy is up or down. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Skip with me over to, um, skip with me over to verse 37. It says, but as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of man, the son of man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So also shall the coming of the son of man be. Now this is talking about the rapture because he's talking about the coming of the son of man. He's talking about the appearing of the Son of Man. This is talking about the rapture. He, Jesus identifies the signs as being like the signs of Noah's day. What was happening in Noah's day? People were eating and drinking, giving in, uh, marrying and giving in marriage. Notice that those are the same two things that Paul identified as signs of the end when he wrote to Timothy. Jesus puts the same emphasis on marriage and eating that Paul does by the Spirit of God years later when he writes to Timothy. Now, in a general sense, this means people are about their business, they're taking care of their life, and they're not concerned about the things of God. I don't have any doubt about that whatsoever. But remember, the Bible says that Noah was 100 years building the ark. You know what that means? That means Noah preached for 100 years about a flood. And I don't mean he stood up every day and proclaimed, there's a flood coming, there's a flood coming. I'm sure there were days where he did that. But every day that he's hammering a nail, Every day he's putting something in place. Every day that he's out there working on this thing, and he did for a hundred years. Every day is a witness that there's a flood coming. Well, I wonder what people did. Maybe on the first couple of days they said, flood, oh, wow, what's flood? No, you're going to have to tell us about this. Well, there's going to be a lot of water, and everything, the earth's going to be covered in water, and everything's going to die. Man, I'd be concerned about that. But a week or two goes by, and then a year or two goes by, and then 20 years goes by, and then 30 years goes by, and they say, oh, crazy Noah, he's still out there hammering nails. People fall asleep. He said that's what it's going to be like at the end. For who? For the world? Oh, so the world's already asleep. Not only are they asleep, they're dead. What's the difference in a dead man and a man that's asleep? Well, from a distance, you can't tell the difference. They're both laying still. They look the same. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. Well, we gotta, we're going to have to quit. It's, it's late. We've still got communion to go. How do we wrap this up? Um, uh, let's just keep reading a little bit. Verse 40. Then shall two, here's, here's how we know this is talking about the rapture. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other is left. That's the rapture. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. What are we to do? Verse 42, watch therefore. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, He would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. 
Who then is a faithful and wise servant over whom his Lord has made him ruler over his household to give him meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, shall, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all of his goods. Folks, there's a blessing for faithfulness. It's a blessing for faithfulness. And I know you kept reading and it's talking about the one that doesn't and all that kind of stuff. I don't want to end on a negative. Let's end on a positive. There's a blessing for faithfulness. We're supposed to see the times that we're living in. Let me just make this statement. Accept it at face value, if you will. Check it out if you want to. I invite you to do so. There is not one prophecy left to fulfill for Jesus to come back. Not one. It's the only time in the history of the world that that can be said. Not one prophecy. There is only one thing left to be done before Jesus comes back, and that is for the shout to come from heaven. That means we're living, uh, well, the, the, the common phrase is living on borrowed time. It's not borrowed time. We're living in extra innings. As far as prophecy is concerned, the game's over. Time is up. The clock has expired. Well, then why wasn't, didn't Jesus come back the instant the last prophecy was fulfilled? There's only one reason, and that is the Bible says that Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. He's waiting for people to come into the kingdom. He's not trying to see how many people will go to hell. He's trying to see how many people can I get into my family. That has everything to do with faithfulness. It has everything to do with you being faithful to what God's called you to do. It has everything to do with you using the gifts God's given you in the manner that he wants you to use them. It has everything to do with you not being weary in well-doing. Because in due season, you will reap if you faint not. That's what Paul wrote to the Galatians. We've got a responsibility. Because Jesus paid a great price for us. We're living in the last of the last days. We're living in the last of the last days. The Lord showed me something this last week about how much time we've got left. I've always talked about, I don't know how much time we've got left, but it could be close. I'm careful about buying green bananas. But the Lord showed me something, and it's in that story about Noah, as it was in the days of Noah. We just read over in First Thessalonians that we should not be taken unawares. We should have an idea. I got an idea. I've got a plan now. I've never had more than a five-year plan, and it's always been about, I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I've got a plan now for further. And that's the reason I believe why God gave it to me. But I see some things. And folks, if a day with the Lord is just a thousand years, we've got hours left. If what I've got is right, we've got hours left. According to the signs around us, the signs in the church, the signs in the world, we've got hours. Let's be ready. Amen. Would you join me in prayer for a moment, please? Father, thank you for your goodness. I pray that you've stirred people's hearts about things, Father, to be ready for the end, to judge themselves, to take a look at our lives. And we should do that all the time anyway, Father, at least from time to time, that we should judge ourselves and take stock of our own lives. What kind of life are we living in front of other people? What are we doing to reach others around us? Are we watching? Are we being steadfast? 
Are we letting things get loose? Have we gotten complacent? I pray, Father, that you would stir our hearts so that we would be completely and totally committed. That we would live each day like Jesus is coming back that day. Not putting anything off till tomorrow, but taking care of those things which need to be done for the sake of the kingdom. Lord Jesus, I thank you that that's the way you lived your life when you were here on the earth. You didn't slack off because you cared for us. You recognized that we were your purpose. Help us, Father, to realize that others are our purpose too. Lord, we thank you for your great sacrifice. We thank you for holding steadfast to the end, just as you expect us to. In Jesus' name, amen.